Welcome to the first episode of the podcast Splitting Cases with Pointy and the Moose. Basically, guys, we're going to catch up every week and talk to each other or a friend about something we feel is interesting. And so that could be music, movies, or sometimes something with a bit of culture. We'll split a case. We'll provide the beer. They provide the... um... Hopefully entertainment. (laughs) Hopefully it's entertaining for you. So today's subject for the first ever podcast is UMI, a subject we're both passionate about. And it seemed like a better place, if any, to start. For those that aren't aware who UMI are, they're an Australian band that have been around for about 20 years or so and consist of four members, Tim Rogers on vocals and guitar, Andy Kent on bass, Davey Lane on guitar and Russell Hopkinson on drums. I was lucky enough to chat to Tim Rogers for my day job in radio the other day and despite not having heard the podcast yet, he was kind enough to say these words. Hey, this is unworld-renowned cult icon Tim Rogers. When I'm not traversing the world stages, doing your landscape gardening, trying to make up with either your boyfriend or your girlfriend. I'm sitting at home drinking a lovely warm Jamison to fill my belly and listening to my favourite podcast in the world, Splitting Cases. Pointy, where did we meet? At UMI, of course. And I remember it being a really great show. It was at the Newcastle Workers' Club for Surfest in 2006. And it was probably a couple of months before Convicts was released. I remember maybe just yelling out that you had a nice shirt, maybe. (laughs) I had been there with a friend and some guy with curly blonde hair walks up and goes, hey, nice shirt. And I was wearing a um, snake-tied shirt. We got chatting and eventually realised we were both huge UMI fans. And I think he said, oh, you should come over and check out my record collection one day. And then it all led from there, I guess. (laughs) That sounds very sinister. (laughs) It did. I don't know. I think I was maybe young and naive enough to go, yeah, I could go around to some guy's house who's asking me to come check out his record collection. I'm glad it ended up nice and sincere. Yeah, there was no rubbing lotion on the skin or else it gets the hose again or anything like that, I promise. From there, we ended up really great mates and fast forward to a podcast, which you're hearing now. So the best place to start is when did you first get into UMI? I think I probably would have been 14 or 13. It was probably around the time that number four record came out. I'd been aware of the band before that because I'd borrowed Alley Daily and Hi-Fi Way from Beresfield Library, would you believe? So yeah, it was definitely number four record was the first one that I probably got into a lot and then sort of went back from there. What about you? I'd seen the film clip to Rumble on TV. Just after that came out, we moved to New Zealand. And a week later, my brother who was in Melbourne sent me a... um, a cassette that he'd recorded off his CD copy of Number 4 Record and I wore that cassette out listening to it every day on the way back from school and then from there it was actually my brother that really fostered that love of UMI because the record after that was Dress Me Slowly and I'm leaning down as we speak and I've got the copy that my brother sent me an actual CD copy because I was I was quite young at this point. I mean, I was an 80s baby. So my brother sent me a physical CD copy which was so superior to a cassette copy of Number 4 Record that I was so excited. But I've actually got the post-it on the inside of the record 
that says, Hi, Grant. Hope you like it. In brackets. Or I'm toast. Gulp. See you real soon. Love, Josh. That's lovely. That is lovely, right? Like, So he kind of fostered that. And I think he did the same with the next record, Deliverance. Because in small town New Zealand, there wasn't a lot of reference points to getting new music. And to have that point of reference in Melbourne that would kind of just send me stuff and especially UMI stuff and really get me into that. It was like the internet before there was the internet. <laughs> yeah, human you connection. Human connection. That's the internet before the internet. When was the first time you saw UMI Life? It would have been in 2002 and I remember it distinctly because I'd actually been in hospital for the best part of a month because my lung had collapsed and it was my first uh, public outing <laughs> after getting out of hospital. And I uh, went to the Cambridge Hotel in Newcastle and I went with uh, some of my best mates that I'm still friends with now, uh, Dylan and Russell. And I remember hearing Who Put the Devil and pretty much the a best of set of the last four albums. So Who Put the Devil before Deliverance came out? Yeah, that's right. Then I remember when the album did come out, Deliverance, which is now one of my favourite UMI records and probably the one that's underrated the most. Mm. It probably wasn't a good indication as a single of what you were going to get from the album. First time I saw UMI was when we were back from New Zealand for a while. I said I was living there for a while. And my first proper festival was the big day out earlier that year, the fateful Limp Biscuit one, but we were the night before in um, Auckland. But uh, my brother, once again, strong UMI connection there, decided to take me to Home Bake, which was the first full Australian festival that I'd been to. And that year, in 2001, was headlined by the Hoodoo Gurus. But I, I do remember that I think it might have been around 7 o'clock in the day, the lights were just going down, and UMI, who had just released Dress Me Slowly that year, came on and played a fantastic set. And to see them the first time at a festival in among, in that environment, like probably second festival I'd been to, it was just so exciting to finally see this band you'd heard on record for a couple of years by then. It was, it was an awesome experience. One of those experiences where you kind of see it through other people's heads and you kind of get a glimpse of Tim here and there and the band and Andy here and you probably don't see Rusty at all because you're too short. Alright, so since we both got into UMI heavily around the time of number four, when did you first look back and get into Sound As Ever? I would have been in year 10. I got it as a Christmas present that year. It was a very different sound to what I expected on first listen, but there's certainly a lot of really great songs on that album that are still sound brilliant today, like particularly the title track. When that's played live, it's, it's incredible. I think it took me a while to get into Sound As Ever, but it took me seeing them live more often and really appreciating those tracks. But I always loved Coprolalia and that bass line. It's just, it's just a fantastic sound. And the way Tim's voice sounded at that period is just so different. It's like it's, it's hearing a band evolve, but once they already had going back. Moving on to Hi-Fi Way, there's such a dramatic change in sound there. What were your thoughts on that when you first heard it? Oh, I just loved Hi-Fi Way when I first heard it. Mm. I mean, it was instantly catchy. 
there was really strong songs on it. I didn't really understand what there was not to like. <laughs> I think that's a general consensus around you and my fans for that record. For me, it was the track She Digs Her with that drum start. It just kicks into these beautiful chords and it's just such a great track. There's not many albums that I say this about and maybe it's because I'm morose and listen to depressing music, <laughs> but I feel it's a party album, even though it's probably not in a lot of people's eyes but to me it's just the joy it brings me like if there's a party that's what i want to put on other favorite moments off that record how much is enough you know i never get disappointed when they close with it we'll get to that in the next little while but we've seen them play more times than we could possibly care to remember but the amount of times we have seen them close with how much is enough is is staggering like that's it's a great closer yeah i mean i did quite like it when they did change it up for a little while there. I think they were playing uh, the piano up the tree. Yeah, Which yeah. was also brilliant. Amazing um, song. But, but yeah, I've never tired of How Much Is Enough. Moving on to Hourly Daily. If you've only heard that album and go to see them live, you might be disappointed. Not because the songs aren't great or the band aren't great, but that's not the sound of the band that you're going to hear live. The songs on that record, though, are absolutely amazing. The production is amazing. Mm. It really does capture that suburban feel. And if you read pretty much any list ever on, you know, iconic Australian albums, you're going to see Ali Daly there, and it definitely deserves to be there. Ali Daly just has this great consistency from the opener right through to the closer. It really feels like a record, you know, like uh, like you put it in the classic sense. Yeah, well, of course, it's got a secret song. <laughs> that is arguably one of the best songs on the album. All right, so we both really fell heavily for number four, which was the next record. What was it that really attracted you to number four when you heard it? I bought the CD single for What I Don't Know About You after watching the video clip on Rage. It's a pretty funny video clip, so if you haven't seen it, uh, jump on YouTube and check it out. But it wasn't so much the the single itself or the A-side that got me into it. Um, It was also the B-sides on that single, which from memory is uh, a live version of Applecross Wing Commander, a live version of Kathy's Clown and a song called uh, You Want It So Bad. So, yeah, I just loved, in the days of CD singles, you would buy it for the title track and hopefully there'd be a a couple of surprises on there. I would never listen to it song by song as it was really difficult to do kind of on a cassette. Like, you'd fast forward, you'd rewind, you'd never get it quite right. So It's not an enjoyable experience. It's not an enjoyable experience. So you just listen to it as a whole record and you'd listen to it a hundred times and you go, oh, well, I'll just listen to it like a hundred and one, you know? Like, I I really loved the, the sequencing on it, just the sound of it. But what I don't know about you, the single you bought, is just such an amazing standout track on number four. There's plenty on that album. And actually, come to think of it, maybe my first listen to the album was actually the Live of the Wireless performance that the band did during that time. I, I did have that on cassette probably before the album came out, I'm assuming. Um, and yeah, I used to give that a pretty good thrashing. That record was one that really grew with age. Sort of like I, I fell for the melodies when I started listening to it. And then as I grew older, the lyrics really gave me much more comfort and meaning over time. And it was a real grower of a record, and I will always have such a soft spot for that. Anything that opens with junk (laughs) is going to be great. True. 
So moving on for number four, it was sort of the first time that now that we were aware of them, new albums were coming out that we could wait for and anticipate and get into. So do you remember the first you heard of anything off Dress Me Slowly? Before Dress Me Slowly came out, there was also a live release, uh, Saturday Night Round 10. Mm. And that was the, the first record that had Davy Lane playing on it. And so I remember getting that when it came out and it came with a bonus disc of a couple of really great tracks that must have been recorded around the time of number four, which were brilliant songs, like one in particular, uh, Useless Information, Mm -hmm. I think is fantastic. So I remember looking forward to that album, getting it, listening to it on my Discman on the way to Port Macquarie, I think, on like a year 10 (laughs) camp. So it was the first album that David was on and it just gave it such a beefier sound. Yeah, I agree. So what was the first you heard off Dress Me Slowly, the next record? It would have been Damage, which was the the first single off the album, which had a pretty interesting film clip. I'm not sure exactly what it means, but it it looks pretty beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, it does. But I also remember buying that album, Beaumont Street Beat, which was a secondhand CD shop in Hamilton, which I probably bought maybe half of my CD collection from growing up. What about you? For me, it was the the Get Up single, actually. That was the first single I remember buying from UMI. Like, I, I was really excited because I'd had the tape. I knew the album was going to be coming out. I think I'd read in Rolling Stone that they were recording it the year before. And I was really excited. So I went out and bought Get Up, and I loved the B-sides off that. And then it was that record that my brother sent me from Melbourne, the Dress Me Slowly record with the post-it note inside about toast. I mean that really sucked me in when I got it. And that bonus disc as well was such a big thing. I mean, that was the first... I hadn't had access to What Rhymes With Cars and Girls, Tim Rogers' first solo record yet. So that was the first I'd kind of heard of him on his own. I hadn't actually heard What Rhymes With Cars and Girls at that point either. Um, I'd heard the singles off it, but I hadn't heard the the record itself. Yeah. So I probably didn't listen to it too much uh, when I first got it, but a couple of years later, that bonus disc became my go-to uh, for probably being a sad bastard and you know, <laughs> drinking at home. But you, you listened to the album quite a bit. You like, how did you feel about that album when it came out? It was obviously a different sound to the to the previous few albums. I remember there being a, a lot of, uh, not hate, but a, a lot of people that probably didn't seem to get what the band was doing or thought they'd gone a bit too pop, but I don't know, that wasn't my... Uh, my take on it at all that wasn't my take on it at all either like it just kind of it got me so excited from the moment i heard judge roy and it was a ride through that album and the fact that they released kick a hole in the sky as a single that was my favorite track for a very 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 long time also some of the slower songs on there like sugar and weeds yeah anyone that listens to that and doesn't feel something (laughs) is probably not alive (laughs) so trust me slowly was a fantastic record in general and I, I think it was underrated I mean even by the band themselves I feel like well, they don't rate that album very highly well from what I'm, I've read I'm, I'm not sure if it's that they don't rate the album but maybe it's the um, environment that they had to record the album in it sounds like there were a lot of pressure from 
the American labels maybe to make a more commercial album. Yeah, I did. I did hear that. It sounded like the environment where someone said, you know, there needs to be more hits or more of this and more of that, and there might have been a bit too much pressure. Read the track list of the album: Judge Roy, Get Up, Damage, What You Doing to Me. How they're not hits on there. I feel they should have been a much more successful band, but would they be the same band if they were? Who knows? Yeah. All right. So from there, the next record was Deliverance. My first experience with that was being sent it by the brother in the mail and um, we went for a drive up to the Bay of Islands, which is up near the top of New Zealand, and I listened to it quite a bit on that trip and really, really loved it. And uh, once, like number four, that record appreciated over time. And I don't know if I've got my timelines mixed up here, but I'm pretty sure that I bought Deliverance the same time I bought Highly Evolved by The Vines. Hmm. And I'm really quite embarrassed to admit this, but at the time, I did like Deliverance, but I probably played Highly Evolved more, and over the years, that opinion has changed massively. And don't get me wrong, Highly Evolved is a fantastic album, but Deliverance, it it really is a grower. There's a lot of songs on there that maybe don't catch you at first. It's just a really fucking strong album. Highly Evolved came out in a time where the Vines were kind of being held up as sort of our version of saviors of rock and roll. And I think what UMI should have done is change their name to The UMI at that time. (laughs) And I reckon it would have been a number one record. Deliverance, I I completely agree and forgive you for loving Highly Evolved more at first because, I mean, it's like that with records. Some records and the best records are the ones that stick with you over time and grow. So after that record and cheering, there was there was a bit of a break before the next records. Yeah, well, I think there was a, a best of that came out shortly after Deliverance, mm. and there was a pretty big tour to support that best of as well. Mm. But yeah, I, don't, I think the next album was Convicts in two thousand and six. So there, yeah. yeah, roughly a four year break. But in between, Tim brought out a couple of solo records. Yeah, I mean. To someone looking at standalone albums or looking back, that seems like a long break. But to them, it mustn't have at all. It's like you have so much to do within that period that by the time you get around to recording an album, which takes a while to have written and recorded, you know, it's it's a huge thing. Uh, the first Pictures album might have came out at that time as well. Around that so, time, yeah. So Davey would have been busy with that. Spit Polish and Ghost Songs, Dirty Ron came out around that time. So, yeah, yeah, there was plenty of stuff to to keep him busy, I guess. And so from there, by that point, I was well and truly back in Australia. And the first I heard of Convicts coming out was that first show that we met. Tim dropped the mic and performed this track that I was sure was a cover that I hadn't heard because it was just totally punk, rock and roll, fantastic Stooges kind of sound. Tim wasn't playing guitar or doing anything remotely delicate. He was screaming, he was running around, he was on the floor. It was, it was fantastic. And that turned out to be, thank God, it hit the bottom. I can remember us talking about that after the show, and I think we both might have said maybe it was a Stooges song. Mm. From there, like uh, that Surf Fest show, I remember hearing the record. They did, a, they must have done, you and I must have done a um, track by track kind of thing on Triple J. And 
I remember that I was still living with my parents at the time and I think they were out for the night. They must have been out at something and there's this track by track and they're going to play the whole album. I turned it on and I pretty much just jumped around the house by myself while everyone was out listening to that and listening to them talk about track by track and noticing such a distinctly different sound on Convicts. Anyone who can't jump around to that album, there's something seriously wrong. Oh, as I just said, they jumped around the house. Yeah, yeah. well, that's what it, it makes you do. It's the album that really got me, not that I ever strayed from UMI, but that cemented it for me because to have a band release an album that vibrant and that urgent at that point in their career and at a time where there were people, you know, basically saying that they, they were done for yeah. and that they, they weren't going to continue and to have them come back with this fucking kick it off with thank god i hit the bottom was just felt to me like a big fuck you to the critics yeah and it was just like we're back and they haven't left since i think urgent is is the main word with that record like it's just so immediate it's like it's short fast loud great everything is so consistent those songs from convicts still get a massive rise from the crowd now yeah because they're great live songs yeah well they're not only live great live songs they're they're great songs yeah uh, but yeah, even recently when both you and I were at Festival of the Sun uh, in Port Macquarie, those songs, they got played and there was a bunch of kids just going nuts, mm. which was surprising because I don't think many of them were there to see you and I. <laughs> well, I remember that that was the time that now that we'd got to know each other, we first started seeing you and I together. And as I said, we've seen them countless times since then. But was that the year where we kind of did the terrible Sydney, Sydney thing and all of that? Yeah, that was the year of the fruit mince pie. To put it into context, we just got to know each other. I Was it Dylan that came with us that day? Yeah. I'd never met um, Aaron's friend Dylan really before. And it was kind of... It was kind of... A new experience is the kind of thing you do when you're young. It was a leap young. of faith. It was a leap of faith, yeah. It's the kind of thing you do when you're young and you just go, oh, stuff it, let's go do it. We got to Terrigal and we took a cab, booked into a hotel, we're all staying, I think walked to the gig from there. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And uh, it was a pretty sweaty gig. It was a big night. We had a fantastic gig. We're up the front, we're jumping up and down. I think um, Rusty popped a bottle of champagne and I ended up getting handed it. So, of course, I'm carrying that empty bottle of champagne around. But we went for a walk, couldn't find anywhere late night Terrigal to get some food. So, of course, there's a, there's a light on in a bakery and we, we knock on the door. But I just remember the guy, the, the baker, the look on his face when there were three guys just kind of standing outside the bakery salivating because there's this light on. And we just knocked on it until he walked his way through the shop and said, all right, I, I suppose we've got food. I think the only thing we've got left that's fresh is fruit men's pies. Do you want to buy them? And, but you have to come around the back door. It was very Dawn of the Dead. We were, uh, <laughs> it was like us trying to break down the doors to a supermarket or a mall. It was uh, probably a disturbing sight for him. From there, we caught the train then again down to Sydney, didn't we? Was that the same weekend? Yeah, it was. There was this thing called MySpace, <laughs> which I think is a thing again, kind of. But yeah, there was this secret show that, that UMI were doing at the Hopeton in Sydney. So we got the train from, from Gosford to Sydney, spent some time having drinks in the city and yeah, got to back it up and see UMI again. And I remember walking in and there being a shot of tequila there ready for all the guests. Got to see UMI play on the floor, basically. It was the Hopetown and it was quite a small venue. And I think because it was a MySpace secret show, it had been announced last minute, everyone 
everyone was lined up all afternoon and after we'd had those drinks in the pub that afternoon we just lined up and waited and waited and waited and got right down the front not a huge feat if you got there early but it was packed by the time everyone was in and yeah there was a shot of tequila and a poster that I still have on the wall I still have the poster you still have the poster as well But that show was just fantastic. It was just so loud. It was it was fantastic, and I was standing right in front of Tim, and I remember him kind of leaning down in the bit. It must have been thank God he had the bottom because he didn't have his guitar, and he had his hand on my shoulders, and I just it was one of those incredible moments. Yeah, well, I must have been to five shows or six shows that that year or that 18 months because there was a secret show there was terrigal i'm sure there was a show in newcastle that we went to as well i think that might have been surf fest that year no there was a, a separate show as well it was also at the workers club but it was in the smaller room oh yeah no no i do remember that yeah but i also went to wollongong that year oh. as well and and saw them play which was a different experience yeah, well, I mean, after that show, um, I bought a last-minute ticket to Home Bake off um, Macca. I didn't really know him back then, and I bought a ticket off him, and I went to see them, and I ended up seeing them playing in the rain. I've got this vivid memory of Timmy Rogers on stage without his shirt, just um, playing Wally Raffles and that, that fantastic vocal-tearing bit in there. It's just... It was really nice kind of seeing them three nights in a row. And like like you, I think you went to Wollongong and I was visiting my brother in Melbourne that year and um, I saw them in Melbourne on that tour. I think it might have been Forum in the city. I'm not sure. But that year was pretty much like the peak for us for like amount of shows we'd seen. I don't know. Last year was maybe not quite as epic, but, but fairly epic. Mm. But we'll get to that later. So from there, it was another couple of years before another record came out and that was, um, that was Dilettantes. But in between, Tim Rogers released Luxury of Hysteria, a fantastic record that was just incredibly lush. It had strings on it, and he was in, he was touring with Missy Higgins, a support act at that time. Yeah, I think we went to the Shed to see him support Missy Higgins. And by the Shed, I mean Newcastle Entertainment Centre. But yeah, I remember that being a good show. And I know I think probably a lot was made of it by, by some people at the time because there was... That altercation that had happened at Falls a, a couple of years before. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It, it was a lot that had been made up in the media. I think Missy didn't really mind that much, I'm sure. And you can look it up if you've really if you've really got a curiosity about it. So from there it was Dilettantes coming out, and I don't have I don't have the most vivid memory of that coming out. I do. I moved out of home in 2007, so it was the first UMI album that came out when I had my own place. So I remember eagerly awaiting for it to come out, and there were lots of parties at my place where it was played. Yeah, and we did go to quite a few shows that tour. Um, I think you and I went to Wollongong together on that tour. That was that year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we we went to Newcastle the night after. We definitely saw Newcastle. We definitely saw Sydney and we definitely saw Wollongong in that year. It wasn't as much as um, the couple of years before where we'd added in a couple more shows each, I think six shows or something in that year. But um, that time of my life might have been 
all those parties where we had it on and I just don't quite remember as well. Dilettantes was a pretty great album in my mind. I mean, you've got Jolly's first time around, Piano Up the Tree. Piano Up the Tree remains one of my favourite You Are My tracks across all records. I think it's amazing. Probably sounds like we're rehashing a bit now because we're saying each album is great, but um, they truly all are. You look, I mean, you're talking to TUMI fans splitting a case and... So yeah, like all, all of the records do have something fantastic and great to offer on their own, but I do remember that, you remember more than I do, that we did go to that Sound Relief show that was held in Sydney and Melbourne. It was the SEG? I think so. You and I performed earlier in the day and uh, it was it was an odd gig. It was really good, but I think it was an odd environment to see. I think, I think Coldplay had played with John Farnham before and it was a very stadium epic environment. Yeah, it was a, definitely a, a strange lineup. The band put on a great show. We did get rained out that day <laughs> and we got saturated. The train home was not fun. Did we get a train home or a bus home? I have no idea. And I'll put that down to the fact that once we got back to Broadmeadow, I got punched in the head by uh, some hooligans yeah. and uh, and had to, to walk home or run home from there. Oh, man, that's that's terrible. The self-titled album was the next release after Dilettantes. It's a particularly memorable one for me, um, and you as well, I'd imagine, because we'd both moved away from Newcastle around that time. I'd moved to Newtown, where I lived for a a couple of years from there, and you were in Darwin. Yeah, I was. So, yeah, I remember that record quite well. I guess my partner and I were spending a lot of time alone (laughs) listening (laughs) to records, and yeah, it was fantastic when that came out because we could go to all the Sydney shows quite easily. I think we went to, to Manly to, to see a show as well, which was, was pretty cool. When Subtitled came out, we hadn't seen each other quite as regularly because I'd moved away from work and... Well, you were in Darwin and I was in Sydney. I remember we did talk quite a bit about that record. Yeah, for me, Triggerfinger was a real revelation because it's like this band just keeps getting better and is definitely finding ways to stay relevant and change and keep having fun. Yeah. Like, you, you can tell that they they really tried on that album to, to do something different, and I think it really paid off. It, it's just that song that kind of makes you think, wow, they're really progressing, they're trying different things. A, you've got that different, really funky feel, and you've got a guest singer on the main hook as well. Tim's one of those people that always kind of goes, oh, I'm not a singer, I'm a songwriter, or I'm a guitar player, or whatever. But his voice emits so much passion and emotion, and his voice is very much the sound of the band, even in his songwriting. And uh, I, I think it doesn't matter if you are a fantastic singer, technically or classically or whatever, it's just that passion, emotion and personality in your voice that Tim embodies. There wasn't much from them for a while until... There was some fantastic news that came out around the time of both our birthdays last April. The news was that the the first three UMI records, Sound As Ever, Hi-Fi Way and Hourly Daily, were going to be re-released uh, with some bonus tracks, which essentially were a collection of all the B-sides from those album singles. And further to that, there was going to be a nationwide tour where the band would play uh, both Hourly Daily and Hi-Fi Way in full. For people who've like heard the bands over the years say that's not something we're really interested in doing, we always look forward 
It was it was a huge surprise, but I think that no matter what the band had thought at the time, I think they hopefully know that the fans like they. I think we as fans and everyone else who is a hardcore fan really appreciated that. It was fantastic to go and hear those entire albums in sequence played live back to back. It was it was fantastic. We went to the Newcastle, the Sydney and the Melbourne shows. And I remember um, there was a significant difference between the three shows. I mean, the Melbourne show was the first one we saw and we'd planned a, a big weekend around it. Yeah, well, we uh, flew from Newcastle to Melbourne, spent a couple of nights there. I think we went to watch uh, Mike Noga the first night we got in. Um, which was really cool. From the drones. Yeah, and then the night after, we went to see Ballpark Music. The third night we were there, we got to see the the first of the three um, album show tours that we went to. And it was a very, I think the best way I could describe it is a considerate crowd. Yeah, they were very considerate. I mean, for us, it was the excitement of seeing those albums for the first time, played in full, back to back. It was just an amazing experience. But it wasn't until later, until we saw the Sydney gig, that we did realise by comparison, the crowd was fairly considerate. Yeah, it was a totally different vibe um, at the show at the end more. It just seemed that, that people just got a, a lot looser and a lot in, lot more into it. I'm not saying that uh, the Melbourne crowd didn't enjoy it just as much. I'm sure they did. Um, it just seemed, yeah, a lot more subdued. And from there, we um, saw the show in Newcastle. It was, a, it was a little bit later than that. I think they did a couple of... They did the finished the Nation tour a bit more before they got back to Newcastle. I can't quite remember, but... I do remember that, again, was a different gig. Like, they were fantastically tight. There's something about the Newcastle crowd being the Newcastle crowd that was quite... Rowdy was the word that I had in my head. <laughs> totally. But rowdy in a good way. I mean, no one got hurt. It was still a fun night. I think there were a couple of close blows, but, um, <laughs> but no damage done. Yeah. There were a lot of people that came to those shows that I think hadn't seen the band in a very, very long time. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see the size of the venues the band plays on their next tour because I'd really like to think that a lot of the people that hadn't seen them since Alley Daily or Number 4 Record are going to get back out there and, and watch the band because they're still just as good as ever and I guess this is coming from someone who never saw them as a three piece Yeah. Um, but I, I can't imagine them any other way they can always do an album tour of number four record I'd go to that I'd go to that as well backtracking a little bit as well I know I know it sounds odd to say we knew something was up but we got a bit of a preview to the excitement of those shows when we saw the band play a show at the Cambridge in Newcastle earlier that year, I think in January that year, before it was all announced in April, when we saw a show that we both came away going, that was the best UMI show we've seen in a long time. Funnily enough, that was just after I'd moved back to Newcastle from Sydney. As we both had. Yeah, it was just electrifying. There was something about the band that night that was just so electric. I think electric is the right word. Like, they were all so happy to be doing what they were doing and the band were incredibly tight and it was just like the vibe in the air was just fun so there was another big announcement around the tour and the re-release of those records which was brew mi brew mi was umi's own beer made by young henry's who i think are a local newtown brewery Hmm. Uh, so yeah so those beers were sold at, at all the shows on that tour and you could 
pitch in to online to buy a keg or a, what else could you buy? A tank. <laughs> you could buy a tank. Which I, I think we were semi-seriously considering <laughs> that at one I, point. I'm glad we didn't because, honestly, the idea of a tank like, and whose house we were going to keep that at and how long it would keep and take to drink... The idea that our favourite band would have their very own beer, what the hell that would taste like other other than blood, sweat and tears, I mean, it was great, it was exciting. And I remember us going, when we first went to the Melbourne show, the night of the show we went to um, a particular Melbourne place uh, two storeys up that was one of two places that had Brewer Mai on tap. It was a delicious beer and a big moment happened in that pub. <laughs> Yeah, I um I got engaged recently that year and being very close to Pointy, I wanted him to be my best man and I thought, you know what, what would be great is since we met at UMI gig and that's been a major bonding point between us over the years, I might ask him over some Brew UMI and I didn't know when that would be, when that would happen, but I thought, yeah, no, that'd be great. So we had, I think, a pint of Brew UMI and that's not usually the way that I'd go and I'd, I'd test a new beer, but it was pretty... pretty Pretty sure. No, no, yeah, I asked um, Pointy be, to be my best man at my wedding. And my partner described it as you asking me to marry you. <laughs> she thought we were getting engaged. <laughs> it was a big thing. I don't know. I thought, like, uh, you want to make it special. you got a best mate. You, you want to make it a cool environment. It's, it's a thing of importance. I mean, my other, my other best man, because they're my best men, I brought him a bunch of flowers I'd bought at Coles that day. <laughs> I mean, it, I, I do apologise on air that... It may not be as ceremonial as Brewer Mai, but it was a monumental moment for me, so I kind of thought, you know what, let's do it around something that meant a lot to us, and that was UMI. There was a certain sense of ownership about it. It's like, yeah, Brewer Mai, cool, that's our band's beer. That's There was a bottle shop down the road, I think around the time we um, went to the Newcastle show was the first time the venue we went to, hey had it on tap, but B had it in the bottle shop next door in physical bottles with a brand logo on it. And it was just so cool to see that. And I remember we got one and drank it on the way to the gig, just walking between the two venues. Like, I remember going back there and decided to buy six of them. And it's actually the last one we're about to drink now. Which I thought it was fitting while recording this podcast. But apart from the Brewer Mai and the tour, there was the re-releases. Do you remember what we did when we first got a hold of the CDs that we could uh, that we could play, the remastered CDs? I do. We had a couple of beverages um, at my place, if I remember correctly. Mm sitting on the floor in the lounge room and, yeah, had a couple of drinks and listened to each album and the bonus disc from uh, from start to finish. I think that was a good six, like, maybe seven-ish hours. It was kind of cool to sit there and go, right, all albums, all bonus discs, those three records, let's go. You, more than me as well, have collected a lot of merch over the years. Uh, being in Australia, you've had a little more access to singles as well, but you've sold a lot out via eBay and you've got quite a collection. Yeah, I've probably spent more money than I should have on <laughs> stuff, and I only wish that that money could have gone to the band rather than the sellers on eBay. But yeah, like I guess in the early 2000s when the internet was not quite as accessible as it is now or as many ways that you could listen to music, there was stuff that you could only get by buying secondhand. A lot of those early singles I probably paid a lot of money for. Also the early EPs like Coprolalia, Can't Get Started, Snake Tide. I think I paid an obscene amount of money for the vinyl copy of Snake Tide. But, uh, 
I don't regret it. Over the years, I think the big thing for me, which with merch and memorabilia has been T-shirts and posters and stuff at gigs. And I do have quite a pile of old UMI T-shirts that unfortunately I don't fit anymore because I'm not the size I used to be. I can't imagine another band that I would have put myself out there for that much. No, I mean, they're definitely the band that uh, I've seen the most over the years and I've been to a hell of a lot of shows. I'm just about to turn 30, so I've got to try and... Uh, or I might have to just ease off a little bit for, for my health. <laughs> but I think, like me, though, you'd never quite... Like, you'd always kind of make an, make an exception for UMI, even if you put that limit. I think we're both saving for weddings at the moment, but I think there's that exception with UMI. I mean, we're both going to see Timmy Rogers play solo next month. There's an exception with UMI that just... That band we'd always dedicate ourselves to. Take our money. <laughs> Okay, so let's uh, expand this from Pointy and the Moose and get a couple other UMI fans on the line. There's been a couple of people we've met through the years that would have a good input. Let's start with Jace, a guy that we know is a huge UMI fan. Hey, man, what's happening? Jace is a person that we've both bonded with as a UMI fan. Jace, what do you love about UMI? For me, UMI was... It's all about the the life that you want to lead, but you could lead it. It's good suburbia. It's Australia. It's, you know, like it meant something and you can relate to it. What are some of the main gigs you remember seeing? You and I was the first gig that I ever saw. I would have been, I just turned 18. It was something called the Split Spring Clean Out of the Newcastle Uni. It was with even nice. a band nice. called <laughs> Yeah. And that, that was the first gig that I remember. Um, probably the best gig I ever saw was the Rumble and Dice Tour on the back of, I think it was a number four record. Yeah. It, rocking gig from start to finish. I think Tumbleweed played support. Um, it was just one of those nights, you know, you, um, you go out, you get drunk on a Thursday night and you just remember it forever. I think, I, I couldn't do it these days, but I remember I got home and the next day I wrote out the set list from memory. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty nerdy, but I remember that I recorded song to song and I don't have it written down anymore and I wish I kept it. You know, you get to the stage where um, as you get older, you know a lot more music from other bands and yeah. friends and, and, then, and then there's the rare covers and um, I, I know a from my has gone indirectly into at least another four other acts. Like, yeah. You know, just discovering Nick Drake through, I think it was Tim Rogers' High Five on Triple J. Yeah. Um, J-File. Um, what I was, Pink Floyd. I was never a Pink Floyd fan. And they were covering an early Pink Floyd song at one time in their set. And then, you know, you go and you get the, the Floyd record. And, yeah, um, that was from you know, uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, wasn't it? It was like something off the first record, I think. It was off the first record. Um, was, um, astron- um, Astronomy. Astronomy Domain. Yeah. Something like that, it's called. Yeah. And you just hear, hear things from, you know, they were doing Lemonhead covers and they were doing just. I heard a great interview and um, Andy Kemp was saying they throw things in for themselves these days and things that they like and things that are going around and like I've heard them cover Jet and they've covered the Stooges and yeah. I you know got into bands like the Undertones, the Pretty Things, the Move that you know I probably wouldn't have got into if it wasn't for UMI. That's exactly right. It's that, and I had that feeling too that that sixties sound, but it was so fresh for the nineties. You couldn't direct them. Well, for me, I couldn't directly pinpoint the influencer. But as you discover more of the records, that when you hear what influenced it, it makes it so, you know, it's so simple to, you know, to put it together. Like the small faces, like 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 sixty small faces records and the Kinks 
Favourite UMI record and why? Must be Howley Daily. I play it religiously every New Year's Eve. Why New Year's Eve? We had one New Year's Eve where I was with my friend and and that record just came on. It was around that time and we played it. And it was just one of those nights. We all had such an amazing night. And every New Year's Eve after that, in just the tradition of mine, even if I'm so busy, I'll put it on my headphones on the way home on the bus or I'll make, you know, make that 45, 50 minutes just to play the album, just to hear it. It always assures that I have an amazing New Year's Eve. But that's a great thing about, you know, you'll find that most of your my fans, as you guys well know, pretty obsessive and pretty fanatic and it's our own little world. And, and other people just probably would not really understand why you wouldn't want to listen to a record like that as well. And also, it's just a rocket record as well. It just makes me feel good. Nice. Thank you so much, Kempi. Well, thanks, guys. We'll talk to you later. Let's uh, try another man who has UMI dear to his heart. This is Macca. Just generally, what do you love about UMI? <laughs> what do I love? I love um, just great tunes. That's where you start from. What's your favourite gig you've seen over the years? That's like picking your favourite child, isn't it, really? <laughs> What's one of your um, most vivid that, gig memories? One, one that sticks out, one that definitely sticks out was Homebake. Which one was the one where they um, recorded the one that went on the live DVD? The King of the Croc, the King of the Croc one. Yeah. There's a moment there where when you watch back the DVD and you listen to the audio commentary, Rusty mentions, hey, hey guys, something online of, hey, and if you look out there, you might see yourself in the crowd. And as soon as he says that, there's me in his stupid hat with a fist in the air, so... That's one of the most memorable gigs from, uh, I suppose, reflection. That is awesome. But, um, yeah, too many to choose from. What's your favourite UMI record and why? Number four record. Why? Because I played the absolute crap out of it till it died. And <laughs> I just remember at the time I was working, doing a lot of work away from home and spending you know, lots of times just sitting there listening to music. And I just absolutely played it till it stopped working. All right, thank you, dude. It was really good to talk to you. Yeah, sorry to put you on All the right. spot. All right, cheers, mate. Cool. See you, dude. So thank you very much for listening. That's the end of our first episode. If you're interested, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash splitting cases and also twitter.com splitting cases. Thank you very much for listening. Split.